0: ...in deference to this high religious holiday. So let me start right off the bat. Is the computer recording system operating? Good. How about the CD? Is that operating? And it seems to be. So we'll record the clock. And the lapel mic is on, and off we go for our... Oh, um, yeah, you're right. Thank you. We're now dismissing the children for Jenna, who found out she had to stay, and her faithful assistant. Just try to have a better attitude than last week, Jenna. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Thank you, Eric. I did go to a seminar, just to let you know, and I should have made Eric go with me, but I didn't. And it was very interesting. And one of the things it said to do was um, um, try to put your announcements, your offering, and your sermon back to back so that the songs don't get interrupted all the time. So that's something that appealed to me, and we may end up changing. Ooh, change, change so hard. Okay, a special Super Bowl sermon today, uh, though you may not recognize it as such. February 7, 2010, lecture discussion number 12 on Zechariah 11, John 12, Matthew 12. Matthew 27, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17. That's where we are. That's pretty much where we always have been for the last uh, 12, 13 weeks, especially on Zechariah 11, uh, because I knew so many people would be uh, would be absent today, um, illegitimately, of course, and we will dock their pay. Because I knew that was just inevitable and and we couldn't uh, uh, avoid it, I uh, intentionally tried to make today's sermon sermon something that would um, not be missed by them, but would be very valuable to you. And so um, I'm not going to repeat this one uh, because of of the uh, large uh, unexcused absences. But uh, this uh, this will be a sermon I think that will help you understand John 12 a little bit better. Now we went through I went through all of that stuff Revelation 13 17 Matthew 12 Matthew 27 Matthew 12 as you know is where the Pharisees reject the messiahship of Christ based on that they said he had Satan inside of him, or Satan had possessed or incarnated or had taken over Christ, and they rejected his messiahship based on that, knowing fully, by the way, that that wasn't true. They knew very well who Satan had, in fact, entered, and it wasn't Christ. But that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It requires, as you know, it requires that God be physically in front of you. It requires that you are a nation It requires that as that nation of Israel that you reject his messiahship on the basis that he is in fact really Satan and not God. So that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we talk about Matthew 12 with regard to Zechariah 11, because Zechariah 11 is the prophecies that says Matthew 12 will occur. Now, we add to that the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart. The hardening of the Pharaoh fits in here because it's got, it's got to be included. Why does the hardening of the Pharaoh have to be included at this? Any discussion about the messiahship, the rejection of it, uh, Judas throwing the silver, the good shepherd, the evil shepherd—what's the Pharaoh have to do with all of that? You can talk me to me today. There's hardly anyone to throw stuff at you or complain. See, the pharaohs included because of intentionality. When I say intentionality, what do I mean? I mean free will. When I say free will, what do I mean? Purpose, intentionality, free will. See, when I have intentionality, free will, and purpose, what comes next logically in philosophy or theological study? What comes next? What's that? Action is because action speaks to intentionality. So when I say intentionality, I'm saying that I am making a what? A free will decision. So what's the question, theological circus? Do I really have free will? Right. Do I have it? The Pharaoh's hardening of his heart comes right into play. How come? Did, who hardened it? Did he harden it himself? Did God harden it? Or was it a combination of both? And if it is a combination of both, how is it that God hardens a heart? And I've made the comment before. This is how God hardens a heart. He steps away from you. It's not an action directed at you. It's an action of him directed away from you. So the withdrawal of God causes what? The hardness in you. Why do you get harder? Intentionality. Okay? So that's how the Pharaoh gets into that. And when you get there to intentionality, free will, and purpose, you have to deal with the existence of goodness and morality. And when you are dealing with, the, with goodness, morality, and intentionality, and free will, and purpose, and all of that, if you say you have free will, if you say that you as a human being, I as a human being, us as human beings, we have free will. Now, we can argue over how much free will we may have, but if you say we have it, then you are saying ooh, that you have an immortal soul. Because a free will is a immaterial substance. It's not a physical substance. It is a supernatural substance. And so free will becomes more evidence for the existence of our immortal soul, and that's part of the underlying issue. So Pharaoh is coming. All of that to say Pharaoh is coming eventually. I have to get to Pharaoh. Uh, and when I get to free will, what else do I do now? I talk about judgment. I talk about Holy, perfect, good, justice, accountability, the issues that surround the pharaoh uh, will come to fore there. Uh, why do I say justice comes into issue, accountability? If you have free will, what's going to happen to you? You're going to face judgment unless you have perfect free will, and none of you do. We prove that today by the people that didn't attend church, Right? I'm kidding, sort of, sort of. So all that comes into the Pharaoh. People, if if you put, uh, if we have accountability and we do not, and there is no morality and we cannot choose good from evil and all there is is chaos, then you eliminate the need for judgment. So that's how it all fits together. Free will is going to be prominent here pretty soon, the existence of such. And I, I know, let me say this, Christians have free will positions atheists don't to the atheists there is no free will now i'm aware and they say everything is in chaos and there is no purpose and we are just random acts of physical material that expire and cease to exist and there is no free will and there is no evil and there is no good the bible says opposite of that so when i see christian scholars and i realize many christian scholars uh, argue that mankind has no free will there's lots of churches that do what do we call them Hyper-Calvinism. They say there is no free will. Man has nothing. He is simply an automaton. And God is therefore what? He is the author of evil and he is unjust. That's what they teach. I'll give you the list of churches. There's some real close. And they say they're saved. Why? Because they're better than you, ultimately. Ultimately, that's how it comes out. They won't tell that to your face until after you become a member and tithe. But that's what they'll start saying to you eventually. And and like I said, let me say this really clear. Christian scholars who argue that man has no free will, they're not aware of the implications of their position. When you eliminate completely, notice how I say that, when you eliminate completely man's free will, you are into atheistic fatalism. That's where you go. Because if you have free will, what's the purpose of you so ultimately that's why I felt the philosophy Christian philosophy fits so well into theology okay Pharaoh is the key to mystery number eight and mystery number eight is the mystery of the Antichrist or the mystery of the man of sin in that why why is Pharaoh such a key he's what Yes, he's a picture, he's a type, he's a shadow. You can study the pharaoh and figure out who the Antichrist is and what the Antichrist will do. Very good. The the pharaoh portrays the Antichrist typologically, which is kind of sort of where we left off last Sunday. Where did I leave off last Sunday? Am I too loud for the small group that's here worry about that? And the baby is certainly welcome because the baby is boosting the attendance significantly. And so we want the baby today. Yes, ma'am. Yes, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the same as the unforgivable sin. Can you commit the unforgivable sin? No, you can't. So what's that got to do with the man of sin, by the way? Come on, you can do this. Why wasn't Judas forgiven? That's ultimately where you go. Can a human being um, commit the unpardonable sin? No, only a nation can. Only the nation of Israel did. Only the nation of Israel can. And you must have Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, physically in front of you to commit the unpardonable sin. And you have to, as I said, you have to be a nation. You are all individuals, so am I. We cannot. Okay, last week I got off of Pharaoh. I didn't even go to Pharaoh. But I threw a type of the Antichrist at you at the very end. Who was it? Oh, my goodness. Your grades are suffering, baby. You know, pink slips are coming out. Isn't that what you got in high school? You had to fill out pink. Oh, Goliath! But she's in the front row. She's. Yeah, she's the wife, you know. Boom, goes right. No, I'm kidding. I threw Goliath against the dry erase board metaphorically last week. I, I did. I picked him up and I threw it at you because Goliath is a terrific type of the Antichrist, and we're in John 12 where we are studying the eighth mystery, the man of sin, because that is where Judas utters his first recorded words, and because Goliath is this extraordinary, stunning portrait. Of the Antichrist, and we have to we have to put him in here somewhere. When you add Pharaoh and Goliath together, you get so many pieces of the Antichrist. It's extraordinary. Now, remember, what's the point of all of this? John says, six, six, six. Know who the Antichrist is. Know as much about the Antichrist as you can. It is wisdom to be able to figure out who he is and what he's going to do. And now, the Old Testament is filled with pictures of him. Pharaoh is a prominent one. Goliath, stunning, be the most prominent of all of them and then nimrod also there absalom absalom with the beautiful hair chasing uh, uh, david the shepherd around uh, uh, gethsemane is hung king of sodom is satan himself prior but but you start adding pharaoh and goliath and nimrod and absalom and sodom and the assyrian and then you put saul king saul here we have king saul right Israel had the flame They had the Shekinah glory of God And they didn't want it On the throne And they wanted a man as a king So Saul became king of Israel You see the picture The rejection of God For a man As king And that is a picture of the Antichrist The tribulation for apostate Israel Okay So as I said You had Pharaoh and Goliath And Nimrod Absalom The Assyrians Saul Cain Balak You know who Balak is? Balak tries to kill Israel. He has a what? He has a prophet, a really good prophet. What is that prophet's name? Balaam. I have Balak and Balaam. They're a team. There's a tribulational relationship between Balak and and the prophet Balaam. Okay, and the Antichrist and the false prophet. I have Ahab, Abimelech, Haman, Nebuchadnezzar, and others. And so you have all that information. When you add it together, you accumulate, and you get to understand and reveal who the Antichrist is and what what his characteristics are, and you end up with the 666 wisdom. It's just a matter of adding it all together, figuring out what it says, and gleaning it, right? And so just as there are types of Christ hidden in the Old Testament... Among actual, real, literal people and symbols, you know, the ark, the bronze serpent, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, those are symbols of Christ. There are people that are pictures of Christ. There are also types and symbols of the Antichrist, and we'd expect that. And Goliath, as I said, one of the major ones. Christ, see, takes Goliath's head. Has David cut it off? Notice how I'm saying that? God has David cut off Goliath's head after he hits him in the head with a rock. The rock had to go how many feet per second? Really fast. So that rock hits Goliath, goes through his helmet, and then David takes his sword out, which is how heavy. And what is David? When Goliath comes out to fight David, what's he see? He sees a tiny little boy. He doesn't see a champion that is in any way capable of fighting him. He sees a small boy. With a sniper rifle, but he didn't know that. Teflon bullet, but he didn't know that. God has to enable that rock, doesn't he? To go where it is aimed and to go through that helmet and to knock him down. And then he's got to get David to do what? Pick up his sword. Goliath is killed by a sword. What is the Antichrist killed by? Revelation 19. Killed by a sword. Out of the mouth of Christ. Out of the Shepherd. The good shepherd, the sword out of the good shepherd kills the Antichrist. So that Christ then, uh, David is instructed by God to bury that skull uh, of Goliath on Golgotha, which, of course, as you know, means Goliath, Golgotha, means Golgotha. And that is where Christ was crucified right on top. And you've seen me do this many, many times, right on top of Goliath's skull. That is a Genesis 3.15 fulfillment that says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Well, that happened in the crucifixion literally as well as uh, figuratively or prophetically. So Goliath stands out. Now think about Goliath II. second. Could any man defeat him? Could any man stand against him? He was a monster, an absolute monster. No man could stand against him. He would come out, this incredibly powerful human being, who wasn't just human, was he? He was also a what? He was a Nephilim. He's a Nephilimic mutation. Anakim. He's a mutant giant. Superman. Stand before the nation of Israel, and what did he do? Blaspheme the God of Israel. Who comes out to kill him? The shepherd comes out to kill him. So Goliath was the champion of those who wished to destroy Israel. He was the invincible champion of the men who sought the annihilation of Israel, and he was killed how easily, how quickly, in front of all of them. How quickly did he die? And there's your Armageddon prophecy. The Antichrist is going, the champion of mankind is going to go into Armageddon in an effort to kill the nation of Israel and he is going to be killed quickly and easily and first by the shepherd king. So the pictures are the same. So a major type killed by another major type. David killing Goliath. Two literal real people who actually lived, who actually fought before thousands of men Who witnessed this in a literal actual event, but both are also used by God to reveal the greater truth that will occur at the end of the tribulation. Christ would be the good shepherd of Zechariah 11. He would kill the mutant Antichrist champion. So what do we know now about the Antichrist? He will be a champion and he will be a what? A man that no one can go against. Read your Revelation 13.4. Who can stand against the Antichrist? Revelation 13.4. Who can go up against him? He's unbelievably powerful. And he's going to be killed how? By a sword from Christ. First, easy. And and his army will be stampeded and slaughtered. That's your Armageddon prophecy. Comes from Goliath. Okay. That is the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 315. Okay. Now we're going to return to John 12 and we're going to reread it. And ask some more questions. And keep in mind always. Why did I bring up Goliath? Because he is what? Type of the Antichrist. So what am I telling you about John 12? That this is either the Antichrist or a type of the Antichrist. In what position do I have? See, it's a New Testament. Now, the typology in the New Testament disappears in in part, not always, but mostly. Keep in mind always that Jesus Christ is omniscient creator God. So when he is doing this, keep in mind he is omniscient creator God. When he speaks, prepare yourself for something incredible. Do not think this is simple. This is not simple because this is a confrontation between Judith and Christ. That is an extraordinary event. Every bit as extraordinary as David and Goliath. Okay, that's not even close. Infinitely more extraordinary than David and Goliath. Christ chooses this house that we're going to read to have this confrontation. He chooses Simeon the leopard's house. That's intentionality by who? God. Does God have free will? Yeah. Do you? If you say yes, what's the next question? Where did it come from? What's the answer? You can say no, and we can stop the discussion. But if you say, yes, I have free will, that's where it comes from, what's it made of? How does it happen? Who gave it to me? If you say God did, then what's the next question? Why did he give it to you? Why doesn't he take it away? Does he take it away? If you say yes, come see me, I'll give you a list of churches that say that. But then you're in trouble With regard to accountability, how can you be held accountable for something that you have no free will decision about? Right. I don't care how much free will you think you have. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to get you a little bit. By the way, is there free will um, after the fall? Because that's the other discussion. There is no free will post fall. There's free will prior to the fall, but there's no free will post fall. Everything is preordained, predestined, post-fall. Is there free will after the fall? What's the free will? In Scripture. Let's just put it in Scripture. Adam did not go to the second tree. He only went to the first tree. He did not go to the second tree. Nor did Eve. That's free will. That's intentionality. That's a decision. That's a purpose. That's a choice. (coughs) <coughs> That's conveniently left out most of the time. Okay, here we go. Once again, John 12, 1 through 10. So open up your textbooks. Get your medicine. Drop your microphone. Is it was worth it. Put the microphone back on. 12.1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, where they made him a supper. So he's in Simon the leper's house. That's Matthew 26. And he's going to have a supper. What do you want to know right now? What's for supper? Is, Is it Super Bowl? No, it's Passover. Okay. And Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. What's the next question? How come Lazarus is getting to sit at the table, and who else is sitting at the table? Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus. We also find out in Matthew 26 that uh, the head of Jesus was also anointed. Thank you very much. That weighs 175 pounds, doesn't it? Uh, As we said last week, that's a year's wages, maybe as much as $75,000 in today's money. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. All of this is purposed by God, Christ. Uh, All of this Jesus Creator God, Lord God Almighty, is intending to have happened every single detail. The Holy Spirit made sure that John put these details down. They are amazing details. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simeon, who would deliver him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. There is characteristics of the Antichrist. At the very least, those are characteristics of the Antichrist. and you get that by the way from uh, Zechariah 11 but Jesus said let her alone she has kept this for the day of my burial for the poor you have with you always but me you do not have always now a great many of the Jews i, I want to know the answer to something now cuz i'm a math guy what's the question i want to know how many is many it's not just many it's great many i want to know how many is great many how many is great many we're in Bethany. I think it's almost the entire town of Bethany. This is many thousands of people. And they're coming from everywhere. Why are they coming? Well, I tell us. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. Christ is there. We want to see him. How come? What's he do? He provides food. Lots of food. We get food. We get so much food, we might eat eat for years if we just gather it all up and keep it. So, just in case he's giving food out, he's he's a walking grocery store. What else is he? He's a walking hospital. I got any problems, I'm going. He does extraordinary things. He heals people of leprosy. He, and, and he has to put their fingers. He has to put fingers on them and ears on them and noses on them and feet on them. Uh, he heals people of missing arms, missing eyes. He spits in the dirt, makes an eye. So a, a huge crowds are coming to see him. I expect that, right? Food, medicine. This is, this is, he's, he's a walking Safeway and he's a walking HMO, isn't he? That's not even close to what he is because he's infinite God. But you get the point. The Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only. Not for Jesus' sake only. You've got to be kidding. Who else could be interesting to them? But they might also see Lazarus, because Lazarus just solved the philosophical debate of traditional dualism between monistic materialism. The debate's over here with Lazarus. And These people want to know that. Now, if that means something to you, a couple of you smiled and it did mean something to you. Lazarus is now the preeminent scientific mind of his generation. He knows something nobody else knows and they want to hear him. Whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests, we call them the evolutionary atheists, plotted to put Lazarus to death. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus, okay? For today, being that this is a special Super Bowl sermon, and I'm watching the clock, don't worry, I got the clock, I got five clocks, I'm on top of it. There's no possibility you're gonna miss the kickoff by more than 30 minutes. No possibility. And by the way, in the first quarter, what will be the case? The game will be over, that's right. In which case? You might as well stay and eat what John brought. Okay. It's special. Special Super Bowl sermon. Special if for no other reason than only a fifth of the church is going to hear it. Most scholars, learned theologians, err here at this passage. They make a mistake always. I read them. I got them all uh, my books are scattered all over the place and I've looked at every single one of them I've got and they all of them fail. Even the best and the brightest, they fail to notice uh, the key ingredients, so to speak. There's a key ingredient here and they don't see it. Again, omniscient creator God is physically present. He is in authority, absolute control. All of this is, He, he has control over. He is purposely making things occur here. He's choosing. He has authority and control, just like over his crucifixion. No accidents there, no accidents here. The Apostle John includes this in his gospel. It's therefore a proof of Christ's deity that he is the Ancient of Days, that he is God himself. And most commentators ignore what Christ is teaching here, what he's revealing here, and that's a shame. So we're not going to make that mistake. Don't worry, I won't erase the great prophecy. If I'm right, if I'm right again, notice the emphasis on again, I will be much harder to live with next Sunday. Okay, I'm going to list this to avoid the common mistakes so that you can see it. Six days. Read along as I start writing these things down. After six days, right? He come. It's on Passover. Passover is in here. Never go by Passover. Is that the key ingredient? Because I have a Passover pattern with regard to the Crucifixion week. That's a B, by the way. Almost looked like a thirteen. I have Lazarus. Lazarus. He's in here. D. Uh, resurrection is in here. And that's very important. Resurrection. Whenever you see resurrection, you got to ask yourself, why is it there? And, and by the way, what you do is you go around the whole Bible and find everybody that's been resurrected so that you can put them all together into one piece. How many resurrections are there? You're going to spend a lot of time doing this. Trust me. How are they all different? How are they all the same? So resurrection is very, very important, by the way. We have Martha serving... Now, she was a type of Christ. I'm sorry. She was a type of Israel. Martha serving. Martha working. In the last place where we found Martha, there is a place where there's typology right there in the New Testament. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Mary is anointing Christ. So you have this picture of all of that. Now we have Lazarus shows up again. How many Lazarus we got so far? Okay. Okay. So you, oh great students, then we have a table where we're all sitting at the table. And then we have, you, oh great students, should be asking yourself, is the key ingredient on that list so far? And then, number I, this very costly oil, year's wages, seventy to a hundred thousand dollars worth, and it's used to anoint Jesus' feet here, but when you add Matthew 26, you see it's also anointing his head as well. It was poured over his head. And as we said last week, the purpose of the oil is to hide the what? The smell of death. It's an anointing, embalming oil, if you will, a fragrant oil. Because we don't have to worry about the smell of death with Christ. How come? No sin. Then I have Judas, and Judas, as I've said so many times, probably uh, after Christ in the New Testament, the most important person that you can study. And then the Simeon reference, so that tells you I have a Simeonic prophecy going over here because Judas is now in a Israel typological position. And not a good one. Apostate Israel. And then the deliverer. You don't ever say betray. It doesn't make any sense. It's deity stripping. Judas is the deliverer of Christ. Look at Matthew 26. You'll see where that comes from. And then you have his, his question. The not sold should be given to the poor question. Not sold given question. Okay? And then the, the poor poor. If you're following along, you'll see why I put poor, poor, and I double it. And he's identified, the Antichrist is now identified as a thief. So what's the obvious question? You have an Antichrist is identified as a Goliath mutant champion, and now he's identified as a thief. What's the obvious question? What would he steal? What's the next obvious question? Who'd he steal it from? And then we have this wonderful mystery of the money box. And I ask all the time, why does Satan and the Antichrist need money? That seems to make no sense. And whenever something makes no sense, then it's always really cool. And in this case, what's the reason for the money box? Yell it out to me. You were here last week. You're the most holy of all. What's the purpose of the money box? I'm going to help you. Zechariah 11. Did anybody have that? The money box teaches you about what particular piece of all of this. Louder daughter-in-law. Huh? Leader is nice. We know the Antichrist will be the leader and he'll he'll fool the elect. But not not what I expect out of my daughter in law. Yes, it is about the wages. It is about the silver that he throws. He wants the money box because of what will go into it. How does he know it will go into it, by the way? Why does he want it? He wants that 30 pieces of silver. Then we have Christ saying, this is about my burial, my death, right? And then again, we have the poor are brought up again. You really understand the poor when you go back to Zechariah 11, because the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor. Zechariah 11 is always who? It is remnant Israel. It is the ones of the the believing Jews are the poor. So does the anti-christ care for the believing Jews? No what's he seeking to do to them do to all Jews frankly kill them all and then you will have me always so you have have always now this this will be up here next week too because we can now have the technology to save it and not have always you will. Have always the poor, but you will not all have always me. So the poor have always, not have always me. So that's a time mark, isn't it? And then the Jews are coming from everywhere to see Christ and Lazarus. And then what do we have next? What do we have next? Lazarus. And then what do we have? The chief, U and V, W. Oops, I missed a V. No, I missed a U. U and, Oops sorry, W. I'll get the alphabet right here pretty soon. X is the chief priests. That's the Pharisees. That's the brood of Satan, right? And they have a plot. They're going to plot to do What? Kill Lazarus. And then we have the believing or the saved Jews. Okay, there's your list. On that list, let me drop this down. On that list is the key ingredient that will explain to you why Judas threw the money. In Matthew 27. What's the key ingredient? I actually gave it away to you because I got to hurry. What's the key ingredient? You're going to pick one thing to study. Which one are you going to pick? Hmm? Money box is a very good choice. Takes you to Zechariah 11. But uh, I don't think it's going to help you as much as you would want. Okay, now we got to go to Matthew 26, 1 through 16, because my list isn't complete. You, you go there, you get the, the Simon the leper of the Semionic prophecy of Simon the leper. So now you know that Israel has the Antichrist in it. This is something, by the way, that many people who think the Antichrist is a Jew or is a Gentile do not understand the Semionic prophecy, because this puts Judas... In an in a Israel position, we find out that this is the house of a semi, Simeon the leper. You see more deliver evidence there. You see good work. You see the anointing of Christ's head, as I said. You see the memorial of Mary. Mary will be in memorial forever for what she did here. You see the gospel preached to the whole world. By the way, that is incredible. Christ says the gospel will be preached to the whole world. Has the gospel been preached to the whole world? Think about it, though. Here's a guy, if this isn't God, who says the gospel is going to be preached to? He's got a bunch of fishermen and a lady throwing oil at him. And he says, oh, this she's going to be remembered forever. Has she been remembered so far? The woman with the oil going to be remembered forever. Who who can predict stuff like that? And he said, you guys are going to make sure everybody in the whole world knows about me. How does he know that? He's God, right? He does that a lot. He says things that are, what would be, if anybody said them today, we'd just mock them. But they all came true. So anyway, we got more work to do next week with Matthew 26. But look at the list. First of all, this is another sandwich. Always look for sandwiches, or bookends, if you will, or bracketing. This is bracketed. What is, what starts this story and what ends this story? Because that's your key. That, by the way, is how you solve Hebrews if you have trouble with the book of Hebrews. Look at the bracketing there. I got, I got bookends. What's the bookends? Lazarus. Thank you, son. I have a I have a Lazarus sandwich. I start with Lazarus. I end with Lazarus. How many Lazaruses is Lazarus' eyes? How many Lazaruses do I have? I have four. I have the where Lazarus. I have the but Lazarus. I have the see Lazarus. And I have the put Lazarus. I have four Lazaruses' is his eyes. Mhm. So, let's ask some questions about the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. That's the key to this. Because this is another area where what passes for modern biblical scholarship falls down very often, if not every single time. Whenever resurrection is found in the scripture, you got to ask what? Is it a sign of Jonah. Notice how I said that. A sign of Jonah. Is it a sign of Jonah? Because Jonah is the sign of resurrection. Matthew twelve forty. Christ says this to the Pharisees. After they rejected him as Messiah. Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Matthew 12. That's why we keep going back to Matthew 12. Resurre- or, the, or the rejection of Christ as Messiah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Dead. Jonah was dead. Don't think he had a book and a little nightlight and, you know, a blankie. He's dead. Okay? And what happened? He was vomited up on the beach, dead. And what happened? Resurrected and went into Nineveh. You have, that would be, that that is the most wicked city out there. And he walks through it unharmed and they listen to him. They repent. The Assyrian Empire, the Kurdistan, the Kurds repented and stopped killing Jews for almost 50 years because a man was resurrected out of a fish and told him that God was coming to judge them. And he wanted them all all to reject that message. He wanted them all to die. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man. Son of Man means federal head Messiah. That's what it means. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Obviously, Christ's resurrection is the sign of Jonah. He's the sign. And that's another reason it is imperative to adhere to the um Exodus Passover pattern for the crucifixion week because I gotta have, what do I gotta have? I gotta have 72 hours, three days, three nights. That's why you have to understand your Passover pattern. Anyway, first key point, Lazarus, Jonah, the two witnesses, okay, they all get resurrected. And their resurrection is very, very different from Christ's resurrection. It isn't the same. When Christ is resurrected and Jonah is resurrected, the two witnesses are resurrected, Lazarus is resurrected, and Christ is resurrected, there's differences. There is a, there's just tremendous amount of difference. Commentators have a tendency to say, your resurrection is going to be the same as Christ's resurrection. It isn't going to be. Was your birth the same as Christ's birth? Was your life the same as Christ's life? Your death, the same as Christ's death. Your resurrection going to be the same as God? It's not. His is unique, alone, singular. Give me a difference right off the bat. I'll give you a pretty obvious one. He resurrects himself. We don't. There's step one. When he's resurrected, it is a accepted sacrifice for sin. When we're resurrected, it ain't that. It goes on and on and on. Okay? That's just to get you started. Next week we'll go over that. He says, Christ says John 11:25, "I am the resurrection, not a resurrection, The resurrection. I am the resurrection. Our salvation, our hope, is based on His resurrection from death. 1 Peter one three. It is not based on mine or your resurrection from death. His resurrection is essential to salvation. You have to know why. Ours aren't... Without his body resurrection, there is no salvation. That's 1 Corinthians 15. So the, his resurrection, or the resurrection, is different from a resurrection. How many resurrections can you name really fast before the football game? Elijah raises a Sun- Sunamite son, right? Elisha is dead, somebody falls on his bones, a soldier, and he's resurrected. Jonah is resurrected. Lazarus is resurrected. The two witnesses in, in Revelation resurrected. Judas resurrected. Uh-oh! I have got to be able to prove that next week. If Judas is resurrected, then who else has to be resurrected? The Antichrist has got to be a mutant. The Antichrist has got to be a champion. The Antichrist has got to have got to not care for the poor of the flock or the believing Jews. The Antichrist has to be resurrected. Is the Antichrist resurrected? Is he? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. So there's your obvious question. Is Judas resurrected? Judas hung? Absalom hung. What other? I got the open graves resurrection. What's that? Yeah, crucifixion. He opened the graves. People came running out of the graves. Resurrected. I have the Jorias' daughter resurrection. So I got plenty of resurrections to inspect and study and compare. And all of them are amazing and all of them are incredible. And we'll do that later next week. But I want you to consider Lazarus really fast. What did Lazarus experience? What did he know? Why did the Pharisees want him re-dead? They have re-dead committee. The Lazarus Kill Him Again Committee. Who wants to serve on Kill Lazarus Committee? I mean, think about the anatomy of it. we got to get together. we got to plot. we got to kill this guy again. Which makes me think that they might have had something to do with his first death. He got sick. I'm thinking poison. Now we got to kill him again. Let's have a meeting. Bob, you're in charge of killing Lazarus. Good luck with that. But just imagine the let's kill Lazarus committee. Did the Pharisees believe that Lazarus was resurrected from the dead by Jesus Christ? Did they believe that? Yes, they did believe it. And they've got to kill him again. They're going to kill him as many times as it takes. They've got to be worried about Christ's option to relive him every time. We kill him, he raises him. We kill him, he raises him. Um, that's not good. Okay, we've got to break the committee up. You go first. You kill him. If he raises him again, Fred, you got the next shift. Yeah, they had a Lazarus problem. What was the problem? Jews were coming from everywhere to see Lazarus. They wanted to see and they wanted to listen to him. Everybody believed. The Pharisees believed. Everybody believed. He's sitting at the table. Everybody at the table. You're sitting at the table with a man who was dead and is now alive. Imagine that. You're having dinner with him. What are you going to ask him? What am I going to ask him? i tell you what I'm going to ask him. What's the obvious question I'm going to ask him. He's gone. He's dead four days. I'm going to say, hey, did you see my dad. That's what I'm going to ask him. Lazarus was a witness. He knew truths. He saw things. He saw people. He knows things that you just don't know. He saw dead people. He spoke to them. He saw people he knew. He was there four days. Four days. Where did his spirit go? Who else was there? What was it like? How did you get there? How many angels carried you? What did the angels look like? What did they say to you? What was physical death like? The exact moment. Did your soul spirit hover over you? Did you see me? Yes. Yes. They believe the Jews believed the spirit hovered over the body. Uh, it was an uh, That's a good question. I think mostly because they thought that the um, that you couldn't really embalm them, so to speak, until you were sure they were dead. The same principle as putting the little bell in the coffin in Europe. Because they weren't so good at figuring out if people were dead for a while. OK, now people missed the game because of your question. Okay. How did your spirit, Lazarus, return the exact process? You're in paradise. Just imagine if this happened in Anchorage today. Almost done. Pat, start turning on that ball game. Lazarus would be what? He'd be besieged. Mourning families would come, especially people that lived in his neighborhood. How many people died in his neighborhood? Hundreds and hundreds, death was, was prominent. People died every day of all kinds of things, tooth decay. Dying people would come, and obviously the Pharisees would come because they represent monistic materialism. Actually, the Sadducees did, but I like to make these people the evolutionary atheists. The scientific community would come and the religious leaders and the politicians would come because Lazarus could prove something. He had something to say. He had come back from the dead. His body had decayed. It had stunk. There was stench. What does it take exactly to reunite an immortal soul with his dead, rotting corpse? The body has to be what? Fixed. It's got to be repaired. The dead cells have to be made alive again. Who does that? Who can do that? The spirit soul has to be found. It has to be brought. It has to be reinstalled. The body has to be readied. Lazarus saw, felt, heard the entire process. How much fear of death does he have? Now, is he worried about the kill Lazarus committee? He ain't worried. And the apostles, by the way, the disciples, had the same kind of ability to to face death. Where did they get it? How did they get it? How did the apostles get the same as Lazarus? Can we get the same as Lazarus? Next week, the apostle John got boiled in oil. Did it bother him? Did he live through it? He lived through it. How do you do that? How about those guys that got burnt?